disciples and then by extension us who have come to believe because of the disciples who became apostles because of their testimony. We're sent to do Jesus' work, not to earn his relationship. He has given us that relationship. He has bought us with a price. We are in him. We are children of the living God. And now, as his children, God's children, we do like our Savior, and we are able to bring Jesus to people as we do what Jesus sends us to do. Many things Jesus did, no doubt. The things I've picked to focus upon are things that are very clear that you can find not only in the gospel accounts as what Jesus does and an example for us, but we're also commanded in other places to do these things. Last week, we considered how Jesus brought himself everywhere he went. It seems obvious enough, but when he had a chance to talk to people, when he took the chance to talk to people, he brought himself and he is the gospel. He is the way to have relationship with God. There is no other way. And so he would always find ways to share himself with anyone he talked to. And he did it by adapting uh, his form of communication uh, to where that person was in life. And he had that knowledge and was able to get into their lives and really speak to the heart of it and introduce himself. And that's what we are to be about in all facets of our life, bringing Christ to those who we come in contact with. But something else Jesus brought along with that, not separate from, but along with that, he brought... With that message, compassion and mercy for those he was speaking to. He knew the plight of mankind. He came into a world filled with sin and sorrow and agony and misery. And he saw it all around him and he felt it profoundly. He had compassion on those he was speaking to. He didn't just give a cold message and just proclaim it and walk away. He, he got into the lives of people. He was with people. He observed people. He, he got a sense of what they were going through. He had a, an empathy for their situation. He had compassion. He had pity for them. And he showed mercy as a direct relationship to the compassion that he felt, that he sensed. In fact, if you would look at Jesus' life, I think you would see that the most common demeanor he had was compassion. I think it still is. In mercy as an outworking of that compassion. Well, I have a definition there for you of compassion because I think it's a unique definition related to Christ. And Spurgeon, at least, thinks that the word itself, that we use the Greek word that we translate as compassion or sometimes pity, is a unique word that the apostles used exclusively related to the way Jesus felt about things he witnessed. Compassion in general means what I have there written. It means having a deep sense of sympathy and heartfelt empathy for someone. Some people are are more naturally inclined towards this. Some have a gift of compassion. But all of us uh, have a sense of understanding about suffering, about misery, about something of pain, because that is common to the human experience. Some have it much worse than others insofar as pain is concerned. But all of us can get a glimpse of or have a, a clue about that because we're human beings living in a sinful world and as sinful people. It means understanding and understanding the suffering of others. Spurgeon, as I mentioned, argued that the word as used by the gospel writers was unique. He says that the original word is a very remarkable one. It is not found in classic Greek. It is not found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version or translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The fact is, it was a word coined by the evangelists themselves, the gospel writers, he says. 
They did not find one in the whole Greek language that suited their purpose, and therefore they had to make one. It is expressive of the deepest emotion, an emotion which moves a person to the very depths of their being. Simply, compassion means to be sympathetic to another person's trouble or pain. And mercy really goes together with compassion. It's compassionate behavior towards those who need relief from suffering. And brothers and sisters, every one of us at some point, probably even now, needs relief from suffering. Pity. That's a word that captures compassion and mercy together. And so they're all used sometimes interchangeably. They're definitely synonymous to a point, but have different nuances. But I will use them together this morning, and I think you'll know what I'm referring to. I know for me, it wasn't until I moved to Chicago and lived in the city that I started to get a real sense of uh, the misery and the difficulty that so many people had. I, I'm sure I experienced it as a as a young person growing up, and, and I remember going to the City Union Mission in Buffalo and seeing some of the difficulties people had. In fact, the first sermon I ever preached was in a place where they didn't let anyone eat until they listened to me preach. It's kind of like that now, right? I mean, you can't go to lunch until I'm done. Well, you could, but... So I knew some of that uh, difficulty those people were having, but I didn't really sense it or I didn't really picture myself where they were. I just couldn't relate. But I went to Chicago and for four years there, ministry after ministry, experience after experience would put you in proximity to people who are hurting, who are who are having all sorts of struggles. Just on the street, if you'd walk between the different buildings that were there, you would be confronted by homeless people, people panhandling, people who are struggling with all sorts of, of problems. And I got a job as a, as a doorman down at 320 North Michigan, where all the biggest buildings are right across the river. And I would usually walk there, but when it was really cold like this, I would take my 83 Dodge Omni and I would park down in the executive parking lot that they would let me park in. It was pretty fun because you should see the cars that are allowed to park down there. They didn't look like 83 Omnis, but I would go in there and park in Lower Wacker Drive. Now, Wacker was below all the main streets up top that most people would drive, and Lower Wacker would be underneath these where these buildings were in their their parking garages, and I would drive into there. But as you would drive into there, you would see see hundreds, that's not an exaggeration, hundreds of people within eye shot, especially in the coldest weather, taking cover down there, homeless people living, just trying to survive. And it, it always would it would unnerve me a bit as I saw that, and I would usually buy my dinner next door and I'd save a little bit and give it to somebody on the way back because I would have multiple people, uh, if I were, was walking, ask me for money or ask me for food. Never failed. And I didn't have much of either of those in those days, but I always felt so moved by how bad their situation was. Just this week, as I was thinking about this and just about compassion and about mercy and the Christ-likeness of that, I read this amazing article. I want to summarize a bit of it because it's so worth it. It's about a man named Patrick Angelo just appeared last week in the Chicago Tribune. It says that Patrick Angelo stops at the McDonald's on Ontario Street. I know exactly which one that is. Where his order of 80 hamburgers and 47 coffees is ready and waiting. He pays the tab and then gingerly places the boxes on the back seat of his black Cadillac before pulling out of the parking lot and heading east. Angelo has followed that routine twice a week for the past dozen years leaving his northwest suburban home to deliver dinner blankets and other comforts to the homeless on chicago's lower wacker drive 
While many painstakingly avoid eye contact with street people, Angelo is the rare person who seeks them out. In this season of giving thanks, the 61-year-old oral surgeon strives for a heightened state of gratitude year-round. And he says this, I have a nice house, five healthy kids. God has given me so much. It seems unfair not to repay his children. Angelo's weekly routine has not been chronicled by the media, and he was reluctant to let a reporter and photographer accompany him. But after one of his patients told the Tribune he was willing to allow it. He had hoped that the story might inspire other people. He ventures into the subterranean world, waiting until after my guys have hit the commuter rush on Michigan Avenue with most the most lucrative time and place for panhandling being right there. Only then does he start his three-mile, 15-stop circuit, eyes trained on every loading dock, underpass, trash bin, anywhere that blocks the wind. What might appear to be a pile of trash bags suddenly stirs to life, When Angelo detects even the slightest movement, he throws his car into park and jumps out, dropping off hamburgers and coffee, complete with four sugar packets and two creamers. The order never varies, except in the summer when he swaps the coffee for high C so that they can stay hydrated, he says. As Angelo approaches, some people leap to their feet, running their fingers through their hair in a futile attempt at grooming. A few never leave their sleeping bags, accepting the provisions with barely a murmur, but to Angelo, it makes no difference. I'm here to serve them. I think when they see someone like me down here, it gives them a lift. Like a door-to-door salesman, he flings open his merchandise-packed trunk. What else do you need? Socks? Hats? Hand warmers? Angelo grabs a couple of whimsical fleece uh, throws, emblazoned with cartoon characters, Barbie, Tweety Bird, Daffy Duck, and wraps them around the twitchy shoulders of his recipients. Doc's a good man, said Brian Champ, 47, one of the regulars. He doesn't just bring you food. He brings companionship. You could call him an angel. I thought it was interesting that his name was Angelo. What did Jesus do? How should we do it? I would submit to you that as we peruse the New Testament, we see Jesus' most common demeanor the way he carried himself the most, and I think this is still the way it is, is with compassion and mercy. After all, we're breathing. That's the compassion and the mercy, and yes, the grace of God. And if that's Jesus' most common demeanor, don't you think that we are, as his people, of all people, called to show that? I want you to open your New Testaments to Matthew. Now, if it's easier for you just to listen, because I realize that I speak somewhat swiftly, especially for the average Midwestern listener. But you've become used to this, which I appreciate about you very much, more than you can imagine. But turn to Matthew 9, if you would like. I want to walk through just a few episodes in the New Testament. I took a couple from each of the Gospels to demonstrate Jesus' demeanor and his compassion and his mercy, really just to set up the final thing I want to bring to you, the basis for his compassion and mercy and how this might look in our lives. But I think it always helps to look at Jesus, see what he did, so we can answer the question, what should we do, if in fact he is sending us into the world? Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 27. I'll start there and just read and make a few comments. Matthew 9, verse 27. 
And this is Jesus moving around in ministry. He's moving town to town as he did. He was constantly on the move. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. Just imagine this scene with these men who have no way to sustain themselves being blind, struggling with misery and the agony of this situation. And they hear of Jesus and they follow him and they cry, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Basically because this wasn't part of his, his general ministry at that time. He was working in a very calculated way to start building his kingdom message among his disciples and then spreading it. And too many of these stories going out would be, become unmanageable as all those who are sick and blind and deaf and hurting and struggling would come and overwhelm him. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. You can understand they had to tell somebody. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And here's a key sentence I want you to really grasp and ask God to help you with help me with when he saw the crowds, he just saw them. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It was beyond just their physical ailments. He saw to their hearts and realized they were harassed by the condition of mankind, even their own condition. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I want to pause before we go to the next episode. Do you think that as he says this to his disciples, who are only a few, that's true, and wavering at best at this point, and there's overwhelming need with all the hurt in the world, and he says to them, pray that God would rise, raise up more laborers. Then skip ahead a few years to John 17. And he says, I'm sending you. Now, here we are 2000 years later. There's a whole lot more of us just in this room than there were disciples. The laborers are here. God has answered Jesus's prayer. We are the laborers. Now look ahead to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. And all I did was a basic survey of a couple of the gospels. Barely had to even look. I didn't even have to Google this. I didn't have to, didn't have to Google the compassion of Jesus. I just opened up my New Testament and on every page it was there. Matthew 15 though is a vivid picture again. Matthew 15, 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He's just going about his business, if you will. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. Do you feel the pain of humanity? It's not just there, it's everywhere. People have deep hurts and misery wherever you go. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. 
when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, I just want to put this into perspective. If it was me and I had just spent all this time healing things that could not be healed, even today, let alone then with the medicine they had, all these monumental problems that people had. I just gave someone sight. The last thing on my mind is that they have to go a couple days without eating. So what? I mean, come on. You just got your sight. You can get back home somehow. That is not Jesus. I have compassion on the crowd. Not the people he necessarily healed, although they were probably part of it. Just the people that were there watching. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me three days. And he put it together because he felt for them and he knew them and he cared about them at a multi-levels. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Now skip ahead to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho... A great crowd followed him. Do you see the need of mankind? The need of mankind. There's so much need. And it makes sense. It's not wrong of mankind to go to the church when it needs something. Because the church claims it's Christ's hands and feet on earth, as Jesus said we are. So it makes sense that people would come to us for help. Just like they came to Jesus. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men, again, sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. You know, I was thinking about this blind thing. I've talked to many of you. Some of you told me that you are legally blind. Now, I can't tell because you wear contacts and you're able to see really well. But you know, if you lived in the first century, you might be this person. Can't get a job. Can't sustain anything. They cried out. Lord, have mercy on us. This life is too much to bear. I can't go another day like this. The crowd rebuked them. The crowd said, be quiet. Tell them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And now you know that he knows what they want, but he wants more for them. But more can't come to them if they don't have this issue dealt with at some level. And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately, they recovered their sight and followed him. It's not enough, brothers and sisters, for us. It is essential that we bring the message of the gospel. But I would suggest to you it's not enough. That's not all Jesus did. Now, if that's all we can do, that may be the case. I I get that. But understand that if we are commissioned by God to be representatives for Christ, we must bring the gospel and we must bring Christ to them. And bringing Christ to them means to have compassion and to do what we can do, whatever that may be. Now skip to Mark, the gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, this is the second gospel, first chapter of it. 
Mark was actually the first gospel written, most scholars believe. It's the shortest of them, the quickest. Mark 1, starting at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go into the next towns, and I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him. He kneeling and said to him, I mean, a leper, the worst of the worst. No one want to get near a leper, even breathe the same air as a leper, lest they get leprosy. And a leper comes to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. He didn't say, hold up a minute. I need to share with you the four spiritual laws. Now, you can be sure in the whole of Jesus' interaction with this man and others, much more is being said than just what is recorded. But it is important enough for us to know what Jesus did for it to be recorded here. And he met the man where the man was and the man needed compassion. Now, we won't be able to heal all these diseases or give sight to the blind and so forth and so on unless God gives special ability to do it or decides to in his will. He may. But we are to try to relieve the suffering to the degree we can that's in our power. And there's a lot more of it in our power than we think. And not just think all we're supposed to do is give the message. That's just not what Jesus did. He spoke the truth. And he showed compassion and showed mercy. And we are to bring these things, all of these things, everywhere God sends us. Look over at the Gospel of Luke. Just a couple more. As he drew near to the gate of the town, Luke 12, 7, I'm sorry, 7 verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. So she had lost her husband which is terribly difficult on a woman in the first century. And now she lost her son, the only son. She had no means now to sustain herself. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He knew this information about her and he felt for her. He said, do not weep. He came and he touched the dead body. The bearers stood still and said, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. When Christ is present, such responses as we see here occur. Fear seized them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. One of the more pathetic scenes is in Luke chapter 19. Starting at verse 41, as he comes to Jerusalem, that place where he would give himself as a sacrifice, he comes to a people who had received the oracles of God. The Jews had all the information you could possibly want to point them to Jesus being the Messiah, yet they rejected Messiah. They rejected the the means of salvation that God had provided. And when Jesus draws near, Luke 19, verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in, in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, within you, that's key. That's a vivid picture of pregnant women who would be attacked and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And not even 40 years later, this exact prophecy of Jesus comes to pass as Jerusalem is razed to the ground by the Romans in the most brutal fashion you can imagine. And he weeps over their disbelief and their rebellion. The last example is in John, John 11. The regular demeanor of Jesus is compassion and mercy, and we see this. And what's so powerful about this passage, and especially if you're suffering today, and I'm sure somebody, a lot of people are suffering in some way, you have in John 11 the story of Lazarus. I know you're familiar with it, but please think of it on many levels. You have a situation where Jesus' friend Lazarus is very sick. Jesus knows he's sick enough to die. In fact, Jesus knows he will die. And this is this happens, and Jesus allows it to happen, and he comes a few days later, not moments after the man dies, but days after he dies. He's already in the tomb, should be decaying. Now, God, the son, could have stopped it by going earlier, but in his providential choice, he does not. He stays where he is. Now, I say this to you because there's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no misery that is not known by God, and actually, in some way, part of the design of God to show himself to you. That's tough to understand, and part of the way is by sending people to help relieve you in your misery. But it's all under God's sovereign watch care. John 11, verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had let, had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, he thought to himself, well, I'll raise it. It's no big deal. Stop crying. No, but he knows he's going to do that, right? But what does he do? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he sees all this weeping with these people who've lost someone they love. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. About what? He's going to raise him. About the human condition. He knows how rough it is, how bad it is, how difficult it is. He knows what sin has done like no one else knows. And when he sees people crying, he knows the pain they have and he feels for it. He's troubled by all of this. Where have you laid him? See, but he does something. They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Didn't just crack a few tears. He wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them, loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? None of them think he can raise him again. He's been dead for a few days. And Jesus deeply moved again. The profundity of it all, of what they were thinking behind his back and saying behind his back, the, the misery of death that had come upon him, the fact that Lazarus is going to die again, even if he raises him on this day. Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And you know what happens next. He has the stone moved away and he yells, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Spurgeon, who I referred to earlier in a sermon about Jesus' compassion, said this. He would not have them so spiritually minded as to forget that the poor 
have flesh and blood that require sustenance. And they need to eat and to drink and to be housed and clothed. The Christian's charity must not lie in words only, but in deeds. Spurgeon says also, Our Lord was moved with compassion, it is said, when he saw the number of sick people in the throng, for they made a hospital of his preaching place. Wherever he paused or even passed by, they laid the sick in the streets. He could not stand or walk without the spectacle of their pallets to harrow his feelings. And he healed their impotent folk as if to show that the Christian does well to minister to the sick, that the patient watcher by the bedside may be serving the Lord and following his example, as well as the most diligent teacher and the most earnest preacher of the glorious gospel. All means that can be used to mitigate human suffering are Christ-like, and they ought to be carried out in his name and carried to the utmost perfection possible. Spurgeon's right, and it's said in a more humorous way like this. There was a guy who fell into a pit, and he couldn't get himself out. A Christian scientist walked by and said, you only think that you're in the pit. A Pharisee type went by and said, only bad people fall into the pit. A Bible-thumping fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. A charismatic said, just confess that you're not in the pit. A Methodist came by and said, we brought you some food and clothing while you're in the pit. A Presbyterian said, this was no accident that you are in the pit. Now, why do you laugh like that when I say that? You should laugh more about the Methodist one. And this last group did the same thing. Because I think we know that we sit around thinking too much and not doing. The optimist said things could be worse. The pessimist said things are going to get worse. Bottom line, don't you think if Jesus comes to the man in the pit, he reaches his hand down and helps the guy out of the pit? That's what we're called to do. Tim Keller, who writes wonderfully on mercy ministry, and I think captures it well, says this. Mercy ministry is working to alleviate the burdens of another person. It is meeting their real or perceived needs through gospel-driven deeds. Mercy ministry is kingdom ministry. It incorporates all the effects of the coming of the kingdom of God and thus is a visual, viable representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through whom all things are redeemed. First partially in the Old Covenant, then really and more fully in the New Covenant, and finally and completely in the kingdom to come. This kingdom principle and God's own pattern of mercy ministry can be traced through Scripture, beginning at creation, and continue through these last days. I would only add to that to clarify with that, that what we're doing as a church is we're bringing the message of the gospel, and we're doing that in the the most foremost way we can do. And then we are attaching to it deeds that show that we believe we are people who have been treated with grace and compassion. And we extend that to other people as a means to show the truth of the application of that gospel. So they're gospel-driven deeds that we are about. Now, it doesn't mean that as you extend mercy, that you will always be the person who gives the spoken word of the gospel to them. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But as the church as a whole does all of what we're called to do and sent by Jesus to do, people will get the whole picture. So when those people on Lower Wacker are thinking about what Mr. Angelo might say to them about God, don't you think they're going to have a little bit of a, a ear peek to hear what this man says on the basis of his care for them over these years? Because that's where we're made body and soul. We have bodies. God made us with these bodies. And when these bodies are hurting for some reason, there's some struggle with it, it's so difficult for us to see to the spiritual. Yet they're not separated like we like to separate them. In fact, for eternity, you will have a body and a soul. 
You will not be some floating chubby little angel. You want to be chubby for sure, which I can't wait for personally. But we are body, soul forever. And God has made us this way. And when we have needs of the body, it affects our view to the soul. The basis for Jesus' compassion then, as I have already implied and now will say explicitly, is based on the kindness and the compassion and the mercy of God toward us sinners. It comes from God's grace. Nathan, in his last sermon, introduced the word hesed, which is a word that is throughout the Old Testament describing God's loving kindness towards people. It's one of the most important concepts revealed in Scripture, and it takes its introductory form in the Old Testament as it's used over and over again, and it's used very specifically with regard to God's favor shown towards his people. He binds himself by covenant to his people, and he shows them kindness, and he shows them graciousness, and he shows them steadfast love. These are all words that are synonymous in the Old Testament and taken from the word hesed, this steadfast love of the Lord he has for his people. And it's this love of God that promotes this compassionate action towards people. And we see it developed in the Old Testament specifically to the people of God, but the people that come from outside that would come to the people of God and to the God of Israel, they too would receive that compassion and that mercy. But then we come to the New Testament and Jesus comes and he is hesed. He is grace. He is given to us as the gift to people who deserve wrath we instead receive favor. That's what the hesed or grace of God is. And we receive this because it's the heart of God. It's an attribute of God that's demonstrated by his saving us and having compassion on us. And because he's done this, we are compelled then to have compassion and grace on others. Now, we don't know the fate of everybody, where they'll come to in their faith and their understanding of Christ or not. But that does not stop us from doing everything we can within our knowledge to help mitigate or take away the effects of the fall and of sin and of suffering as we can. And you can't do it all. We can't do it all. But we should be about what we can be about. Listen, I understand that the bells at Walmart seem to be ringing earlier and earlier every year. And there's reasons for that. But I could afford to put some a few bucks in there. There's so many ways in which we can show this compassion and this mercy. I heard one pastor on this topic. He said that the church is to be the conduit through which people experience the steadfast love and compassion of God. It is the responsibility of the church to minister to those in need, to bring the healing and comforting touch of Christ without partiality. In Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. The church can do no less, he argues. We're the light of the world, a city on the hill that can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. To whom should we be compassionate? Some thoughts for us as we consider this and close. Who should we be compassionate towards? First of all, be compassionate to your brothers and sisters sitting on either side of you right now. We all need this compassion. I remember when I came to Redeemer 16, almost 17 years ago, and I was, Mike Preston was driving me around the area because there's just the house there and there was nothing developed back here. But as we drove through Overland Park, I was not used to I've been in the city of Chicago for a while and then a city part of St. Louis. And I've not seen the suburbs in a while. And these were it's 
brand spanking new everywhere. It was clean and pristine. I mean, it was just, uh, Overland Park had a certain sense about it. It just was, and you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, we all make fun of it. We all live here. Okay. But at any rate, it's just real clean and neat and ever the people look clean and neat. And I grew up in a suburb that wasn't quite like this and, uh, a more blue collar area. And I got to be honest, I did not know how I could fit. I was kind of glad I was only gonna be here for the summer. And I remember getting here and then really falling in love with the people. I was not here. I don't think a month, I said three months in the first service. And I started thinking about the timetable in which these things became apparent to me. And it was much sooner than that within two months, for sure in Overland park, I'd start to see alcoholics, people addicted to drugs, people in illicit relationships, some that were bankrupt and actually they didn't look like it on the surface, but they were floating things long enough and they were actually on the door of homelessness. People needy all over the place. And I hadn't even met anybody in the community yet. That was just in the 80 people at the church. That's first six to eight weeks of being here. I met people in all those descriptions. People are struggling and hurting and in pain everywhere. The difference here is people have a little more money or know how to use credit or whatever it is to buy better quality alcohol to keep them addicted or more drugs or clothes or makeup or something to cover it up. And their pride is not letting them admit what you usually would get immediately in the inner city. They just tell you what the issues are. No way to hide it here. They just can hide it. They could float it a long time. And it actually, in many ways, get deeper and deeper in the pain. It's almost like it's the hopelessness you feel from someone when it finally comes to the surface here is unlike even that, which I've experienced when I was in the city working, it's all here. It's right around you. So if you're wondering who can you show compassion to just look around, someone here needs your compassion, but I guarantee you in their circles of friends, in your neighborhoods, your schools, your workplaces, you know, of others. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Hurting people. Y- young people, I want to challenge you. When your siblings are crying over something, don't be so cold-hearted that you don't ask them why they're crying. Maybe you're the one making them cry. Stop it. Look at your brothers and sisters and see how you can show the compassion you say has been shown to you in Christ. Show it to your siblings. They're hurting. But you know, there are other people we can show compassion to. I want you to think of all the various circles. We could go on all day about this, but let me just top survey a few. There are people all around us in your life who are lost in their sin, who do not know Christ or his peace. Sort of like Jerusalem when Jesus was weeping over them. See them and feel for them where they are. Now I know, especially where we live, people who do not know Christ can expend an incredible amount of energy trying to look happy, to look like things are going well. But you get to know it and you realize that's not true. They're covering it and it's deeply painful. And you see celebrities with lots of money and access to things and they paint a picture of contentment in their life uh, that people latch onto in in, in normal life and say, look, see, they're content. If I could have what they have or do what they have. But those people aren't content. Their lives are a mess. They're spiraling out of control. People around you are racked with discontent, unrest, no peace. Have compassion for those around you in that situation. They're lost. They don't know Christ. They carry a wearying anxiety about the future. And they drown it in stuff and things. It's a terrible existence. They think if they get the next thing, it'll solve their longing. You know, I was thinking it's it's, it's a rough comparison, but it's fresh, so bear it with me. 
Last night, as I was at the Sporting Kansas City game where they won the championship, I thought I've watched them over the years that I've been in Kansas City, and I was there when they won in 2000, and no one cared. More people care now. I know a lot of you don't, but many people do care now, and it's a big, exciting thing for the city, and it is. And you think in terms of those kinds of points of pride, hear everybody talking about their college team and what their college team did and how great they'd be if they number one. And we just think if they were number one, boy, if my team was number one, and we think of how great that is. And when it does on occasion happen, where one of our teams does accomplish this, you know how long it lasts? I don't really care anymore. I mean, I may get a t-shirt, but no one else cares because they expect them to do it again next year or something like it. If they don't, it's a disappointment. That's how people live today. If I get this job, then everything will be okay. So I'll kill myself now to get this job. I end up killing myself when I get, and I thought would change everything. If I just get this car, if I just get this girlfriend, if I just get this, I get this. And none of it's about Christ. And then we wonder when we get it, why we're still spiraling and on the wheel and it's never stopping. People are struggling with this all around us. But there are also those who are suffering with physical pain or hurt. They are sick. They are in physical agony and they need people to come alongside them to feel their pain. We can't heal necessarily like Jesus did, although he could do whatever he wills and does heal people. Normally, it's one of those situations brought about by the providence of God to draw us all closer to each other and to himself. This is why I think Paul writes to the Corinthians, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I hope many of you were comforted by the words that Terry and Joanne spoke to us because all of you have had some touch in what they dealt with and they shared it as a a point of comfort. They didn't say it's all happy and now we're going to smile and skip out of the sanctuary. They just said that Christ is our peace now. And that helps you because you wonder where your peace is going to come from. There are those who are suffering with emotional wounding or damage. People who have been physically violated. They carry terrible mental, emotional damage. This society is wrought with it. The proliferation of, of sex industry, of, of all the things related to it. It's just, it's got us so torqued and twisted and sick that we are rotting from the inside. People need compassion and a way out of this. People have been abandoned and mistreated. There's so many ways you can show that kind of compassion. I remember when we were going through our foster care classes, there was a time where I became so overwhelmed with the need. I, I actually felt not like quitting as much as how could you possibly meet all the needs? There are just so many. But then I honestly started doing some math about that particular topic. And I got to be honest with you, it wouldn't take that many people in each church to actually do something about that to the degree they can. And we would see a massive improvement just on how many children need places to stay. You would be shocked at how little we'd have to do to actually start scratching or start making a dent in that we really could but then i thought of the food pantry i thought of homeless ministry opportunities something like the city union mission the prison ministries that we can be part of we have people that go from our church to the ronald mcdonald house and minister to families who are struggling with sick children one of the most stressful things a person can go through clothing drives that we've been able to give to and continue to give to crisis pregnancy center especially happening with young unwed mothers uh, helping to pay bills. We have people on a regular basis that come to us in the church and outside of the church who need help with simple things like paying their electric bill or their gas bill or their rent payment or whatever it may be, a repair in their car to help them get to places they're going. Nurses and doctors, especially you believers who are nurses and doctors, have such, you have, you have 
in so many ways be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who are struggling. And your words of comfort, your knowledge, the ability that you bring to a situation uh, to offer medicine, to offer cure. And then better yet, when you're able to offer the reality behind who is the great physician, what a ministry that is. Visiting elderly people who are lonely, who've spent so much time giving and giving and giving, and yet now are alone in these last days of their life, and we can give them comfort and compassion. I was thinking of people that I've seen recently in just different hospice services. In most of the people I have met in those situations, they're believers. I don't know how someone could work in that field without having a sense of eternity. Help with drug addicts, immigrants, refugees. There is no end to what we can be doing right here. And I trust that many of you are doing that. I know many of you are. But I want us to think again, as we are so keyed in on the word of God, and we are key on the doctrinal points that are so precious to us and rightfully so, and the message of the gospel that we want to make clear to everybody. Let's not lose that tied direct to this is the action that we undergo, the things we do. And compassion and mercy then should really be what typifies our church's demeanor. William Wilberforce, who was used of God to bring an end to slavery in England, and his reasoning was brought to bear in this country's uh, final uh, stopping of it. He said this, Christianity calls on us as we value our immortal souls, not merely in general to be religious and moral, but specially to believe the doctrines and imbibe the principles and practice the precepts of Christ. Practice the precepts of Christ. There's a sense in which he's saying, if you believe these principles that you speak, you will practice them and they'll show themselves as the church represents Christ to the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Praise Jesus for us. Let's pray.